Good morning. Welcome to each one of you. Welcome if you're here for the first time. Welcome if you're here for the thousandth time. It's a wonderful blessing to be the children of God gathered together around the Word, filled with the Spirit, praying together, sharing at the Lord's table together, hearing from heaven together through the Word. What a privilege that we've been given by the grace of God. Would you please with me this morning turn in your Bibles, first of all, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And then would you stand with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is um, another study in the book of Ruth, and I'll explain to you in just a moment why we're looking at 1 Corinthians 10, but let's begin by reading this text together. Would you join me? We're going to read verses 1 through 13, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our study. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. Please join me in unison. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, and all and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to You this morning as Your children, as Your sons and daughters, bought by the precious blood of Christ. We thank You that You indeed, by Your sovereign providence, your steadfast love, your faithfulness. You are bringing us from fall to glory. You are sanctifying us. You are preparing us to be glorified. Thank You that You have justified us. Thank You that You are causing all things to work together for the good of those who love You and are called according to Your purpose. We pray this morning that as we open Your Word together that You would impress upon our hearts the authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency, the conviction, the transformation that Your Word can deliver to us. Indeed, it is profitable for teaching, for correction, for instruction, for training in righteousness, so that we as Your people may be complete and equipped for every good work. Father, we ask by Your grace that You would cause the Word to have that effect upon our lives this morning, that this would not be just another religious duty to fulfill, but that it would be a, an event of divine work. We pray this for our good, for your glory, for the exaltation of the name of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. What does 1 Corinthians 10, 1-13 have to do with Ruth? Well, I want you to remember something, and we've talked about this many times over the last years. That when we turn to the Old Testament, we look at a book like Ruth or any other Old Testament book, that our, our, our foremost goal is to follow what we might call the hermeneutic of Jesus. 
Jesus said in John 5, 39 and 40, he said to the Pharisees, he said, you search the Scriptures, the Old Testament is what they had, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now what does that mean? That means that sometimes religious people can open up the Old Testament and simply come to it looking for moral things to do and immoral things to avoid avoid in order to earn eternal life with God. In other words, they transform the Old Testament simply into a moral guidebook. A moral guidebook by which they can inherit eternal life. And Jesus says there, don't come at it like that. Because you're a sinner, don't come at it like that. He says, it is they, it is the Scriptures that do what? Speak of me. And yet, he said, you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. The primary interpretive key for the Old Testament is that we would come to it and be prepared to receive Jesus Christ, to know Him, to see Him there, to see our need for Him, to see the the need of humanity for a Savior. That's the primary objective. And of course, that is what we have tried to do over the last five weeks with the book of Ruth. That has been our number one objective. That's why we gave the title to the series, Behold the Steadfast Love and Faithfulness of Yahweh. This is the work of God in the lives of sinners to providentially bring them out of their sin to salvation, through sanctification, and to a place of usefulness for His eternal redemptive plan. We've made made the whole main idea something like this, and and I'll read it to you. In steadfast love, Yahweh, by His sovereign hand of providence, faithfully does all that He has promised to do in order to bring His chosen covenant people from fall to glory, in order to fulfill all His redemptive plans, and in order to bring glory to His name. And ultimately, that points to Jesus Christ, doesn't it? In steadfast love, Yahweh, by His sovereign hand of providence, faithfully does all that He's promised to do in order to bring His chosen covenant people from fall to glory, in order to fulfill all His redemptive plans in Christ, and in order to bring glory to His name. Now we saw that. We saw that together over the book of Ruth. We saw how God brought Ruth and Naomi to conversion and repentance, even through very painful, crushing circumstances. We saw how God humbled them from their human fullness, brought them to a humble emptiness, and then began to fill them with a divine fullness. We saw how God provides for everything in that process. We saw how God protects His people. We saw how God preserves His people, even from very precarious situations that could have tempted them into sin that would have ruined their testimony before the covenant people. We saw how God unites people for His redemptive purposes. He brought Boaz and Ruth together. We saw how God completes His plans for them, exalts them, makes them useful, and really, through their lives, plans and brings about an ultimate consummation. And we saw that through the bringing about of the King of Israel, David, and the ultimate King and Savior, Jesus Christ, through their lives. God worked all that about for their salvation, for their good, for the good of His chosen people, for the glory of His name, and ultimately for the eternal purposes that He had planned in Christ. Now, all of these glorious purposes are skillfully unfolded for us in the Ruth, in, in the book of Ruth. And, and they powerfully call us to respond in what way? Well, when you see that story, you're like, well, I, turn from my sin, right? Turn from my selfishness. Trust. Trust in the saving power of Yahweh, in, in His sovereign providence. Trust Him. Rest in Him. Rejoice in His work. Don't, don't seek my own way, my own time. Seek His ways. Seek His timing. Seek His will. Don't take refuge in in human provisions. Take refuge in the shelter of His wing. And so we saw those things. Now, while that is the overarching purposes of the book of Ruth, 
there are many secondary lessons that we bumped into along the way. How many of you, as we went through the, la- the book of Ruth these last five Sundays, found yourself thinking of other lessons throughout the book of Ruth? You, you, ha- you have to. Right? There's many things that God was doing to mature his people in this particular book. So as we seek to follow Jesus and obey his interpretive key that seeks to look for Christ and God's overarching redemptive plans, I think we can also secondarily embrace something of Paul's hermeneutic or Paul's interpretive key in this text. I want you to notice some things. First of all, the people of the Old Testament, the Israelites here, it says here that that even here Christ was providing for them. It says they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. All through the wilderness, Christ in His saving power was meeting the needs of His people. And I want you to notice something else here. We're not going to touch everything in this this chapter, of course, but I want you to see how it says here, verse 6, now these things took place as what? Examples for us. So the Old Testament is there not only to point us to Christ, but secondarily to provide example for our lives. Spiritual example for the people of God. That we might not desire evil as they did. In fact, it says in verse 7, what we can see here in the Old Testament can help us to avoid idolatry. It can help us to avoid sexual immorality. It can help us to not put Christ to the test. It can help us to avoid grumbling. Again, in verse 11, it says, Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's us. And so, we are to take these things with humility and seek to learn from them. For example, it says there in verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Here's where this comes to play. Have you ever read the Old Testament stories and you're like, how in the world are the people of Israel missing this? How in the world are they continuing to go back and not trust Yahweh? Didn't he just bring them through 40 years in the wilderness? Their shoes didn't wear out. They had water coming out of a rock. I mean, bread out of the sky, quail. I mean, this is, if I was there, you ever thought like that? If I was there, I wouldn't have. And Paul's saying, wait a minute. If you think you would stand, you better take heed because you are likely then to fall just like they did. So take all that God gives to us in the Old Testament and how His people were called to rely upon Him as the rock of their salvation and how Christ, that rock, was with them all the way through and humbly seek to submit yourself to His saving care from day to day in the many lessons of life. And I love how this text ends. No temptation, whether it be grumbling or sexual immorality or idolatry, no temptation has taken you that is not common to man. See, that's, that's, that's helpful. That no temptation that you'll ever experience is unique to you. God's people in the Old Testament experienced it, and people after you will experience this. And God is faithful. That is your escape. God is faithful to provide for you all that you need through Christ in that temptation to be able to walk and grow in a Christ-like way. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, beyond the spiritual maturity to which He has brought you. God tests each one of us in ways that are fitting to our level of maturity to which He has brought us. And with the temptation, with the test, with the trial, He will provide a way of escape so that we may be able to endure it. So I think with that hermeneutic in mind, with that interpretive key, we can then look at the examples of those who have gone before us, including Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, 
and seek to walk in obedience to our Savior, to the Lord Jesus Christ. By His continuing faithfulness in our lives, we are seek to overcome temptation and walk in godliness. We can do that in very, very practical ways. Ways that were both positively and negatively exemplified in the lives of our spiritual fathers among the chosen people of God. Now, here's the thing. We are not to look at their examples as if they were moral giants walking in godliness by their own human ability. Wrong interpretation, right? That's not what we're looking for. We're not to turn to ourselves thinking that we have inherent ability to walk as God has commanded and overcome, has commanded us and overcome temptation. What are we to do with these examples? We're to look at these examples, both sinful examples and holy examples, and again and again and again, turn humbly to Christ in repentance and faith, drawing upon His infinite power as our rock and our Redeemer. That should be the response of us when we come to moral lessons in the Old Testament. Yes, see them, but know that it is Christ the saving rock and Redeemer who enables us to walk in obedience to those lessons. So in light of that truth, what lessons and principles may we glean both positively and negatively throughout the book of Ruth and learn to turn to Christ, our rock, our source of salvation and strength. I have ten lessons that I would like to consider with you. Five today, and Lord willing, five next week. And so we'll, we'll, we'll sort of skip back through some things in the book of Ruth together. You can see the first five lessons that I'd like to glean. That's a good word for this book, isn't it? We'd like to glean these lessons from the book of Ruth. You can see them in your outline that I've given to you in your bulletin. Number one, here's one lesson. Responding faithfully when common sense runs cross-grain with following Christ. Responding faithfully when common sense runs cross-grain with following Christ. Does common, worldly, human sense ever run cross-grain with following Christ? It sure does. Where did we see that in the book of Ruth? We saw that right off in verses 1-5. through Elimelech, right? He's in the situation. Elimelech was in a very difficult earthly situation. He had his family, his wife, his two sons. He wanted to provide for them. And living in Bethlehem, he was in a time of great famine. So what was he thinking about? i got to provide for my family. I don't know what to do to provide for them here. Where can I provide for them? The plain of Moab was a, an elevated, wonderful plain of farming that apparently during this season was very fruitful in spite of Israel's famine. Well, it's not too far. Why don't we go there? But what was God's will for him. God's will for him was to stay among the people of God, to continue to worship Yahweh in the temple, to to trust Yahweh to fulfill His promises, to take refuge in the shelter of Yahweh's wings. And so when he saw those two pathways, they looked very opposite to each other. And so he chose to Take what was common sense for him. Worldly, human, common sense. I'm just going to go to Moab and make sure my family has something to eat. See, here's how it works. There is an earthly difficulty that comes upon us. Earthly difficulty. Whatever it may be. You're going to have to fill in the blank for some of these things from your own life. An earthly difficulty. With that earthly difficulty, sometimes we realize that obedience to God's revealed will 
does not lighten that difficulty. And it may increase the weight of that difficulty. Can, can you follow something specific in your life? There's a difficulty that comes upon you. Continuing obedience to God's revealed will doesn't lighten that. It increases the weight of it. Disobedience, or neg- and then there's a third thought that comes along with this, is that then disobedience or neglecting of God's will relieves that difficulty. Ah. So then what do you do? Do you see the quandary? There's a difficulty. Obedience keeps the difficulty there and maybe even makes it more weighty. Disobedience to God's simple revealed will seems to relieve the difficulty. What do I do? Well, I am called then to trust in the Lord with all my heart and continue to obey God's revealed will. We've seen what it is what was, was for Elimelech. What might it be for us? Let me give you some examples. One, how about this? Here's a very simple one that can touch all of us. Attendance to the disciplines of grace that God has commanded us for our good versus pursuing earthly provision in order to make things financially less stressful. Ever think about the competition between those two? What are the disciplines of grace? Being in prayer. Being in the Word. Attending to the fellowship of the people of God. All those things that God has commanded us that are for our good, that that provide grace to us for growth and strength. Sometimes the needs of earth become very stressful to us and we think, well, I can have more time to pursue the meeting of my earthly needs if I begin to eliminate and neglect some of these disciplines of grace that God has commanded us. Have you ever felt that tension? Even even from day to day, where you feel like, man, I don't have time to pray today because I need to get right to what I'm going to do. It'll be more productive to seek my own strength. That makes more sense to me. It feels better in in my person to go and get busy rather than to seek the Lord. I know what His will is for me, but it's easier to do this. And it seems to be more productive. What are you going to do? This is one of those situations from day to day that we need to say, wait a minute, I'm going to trust in the Lord with all my heart and continue to walk seeking Him and taking refuge in Him and trusting Him to provide while I, while I seek Him with my whole heart. Here's another example. A little bit of a different vein. How about confessing your sin in an, to, to someone with which you are already in a very difficult relationship? Versus just leaving it alone and not bringing it up at all. What's easier? What would feel like it would make the relationship better? What does common sense tell you? Well, they don't need to know that. Let's just move on. But what does God say? God says to make those things right. Trust Him with the outcome of those things. Here's another one. Maybe for folks who are considering marriage, you and your fiancé renting two separate places and having to pay more money when things are already financially tight versus what would sound like more common sense, moving in together and having a greatly reduced financial strain. How often have young people considering marriage done the easier thing, the, more, the, the, the thing that sounds like more human common sense, and said, you know what? I'm not going to obey God's will. I'm going to do what's easier. And they make excuses for it. Well, there are so many examples, isn't there? Of tensions like that, where there's a, there's a stress, there's a weight, there's a difficulty. And obedience to God's revealed will doesn't lighten that difficulty. In fact, it makes it more difficult. Yet, disobedience or neglecting God's will seems to relieve that difficulty. What are we called to do? See, this is where Matthew 6.33 comes into play. This is exactly what Matthew 6.33 means. Seek first what? The kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. 
And what does God promise to the one who pursues that and takes refuge in the Father? All these things will be added unto you. You see, the Christian life is a life of faith like that. That says, you know what? Going God's way is more stressful, it's more challenging, it's more difficult, and it requires faith that God will be faithful to His promises and meet my need. That's, that's what God will bless. God will give spiritual blessing to that one. That's what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 means. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart rather than your own common sense. Trust in the Lord. And watch Him unfold His plans and provide for you. We know that God can do this. And again, one of my favorite texts is Deuteronomy 8 where God describes the very thing that, that I referred to earlier. Let me, I want to read to you God's Word there in Deuteronomy 8. This is what God will do for you when you take refuge in Him. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 says, verse 2, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You ever think of all those stresses as a test from the hand of God? To see? For you to see. He knows. For you to see whether you will trust Him in obedience or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. We, we find ourselves in those situations we say, I have no idea how God is going to meet my need. Exactly. Your fathers didn't know it that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, when God puts you in those situations to see if you obey his commandments or not, he wants to test you and show you that he will provide for you in ways that you cannot anticipate, that you do not know. And then you will learn more and more. We will learn more and more to live based on God's provisions, his, his spoken provisions, he will speak and provide in ways that you could never imagine. He will fulfill His promises to you like that. It doesn't make human sense that God is our Creator King. And then He gives the example, your clothing did not wear out on you when your foot did not, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water and fountains and springs flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, and a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full. You shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Isn't God so kind? Say, just, just walk in my ways. I will take care of you. Trust me. He's so generous and so kind. He couples that with His commands to follow His will. Well, another lesson I want to point out to us as we consider the book of Ruth, number two, responding faithfully to the Lord's discipline. Responding faithfully to the Lord's discipline. One of the things that stood out to me as I looked at these first five verses again is that God clearly, in the context of the book of Judges, was bringing discipline upon His people. There was famine in the land. We know what famine means. Israel knew what famine meant. The, the people of Israel in the book of Judges lived in that cycle of rebellion against God, idolatry in their lives, unrepentant sin. God did something drastic to bring them under great pressure and discipline. They repented. They cried out to Him. And God relieved 
that discipline and restored them. And that happened again and again and again. So certainly Elimelech was not unintune with what a famine meant. God had told his people clearly. It had been read again and again and again in the synagogue. They knew what famine meant. It's clear in the book of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and so on. And yet, he took his family to Moab. But notice what happened here in verse 3. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. You would think that it would have occurred to them that they were in the wrong place. Seeking a good thing, provision for the family, but in the wrong place. Not seeking it in God's way and in God's time. And that God was again putting a pressure upon their lives by removing the father. But instead of being thoughtful about it and seeking the Lord and repenting at that time, Naomi and her two sons continued along the same path of disobedience to God. In fact, they took Moabite wives, which was not God's will for them, even though God worked all that out for his glory, right? Which is amazing in his grace. But the fact is, is their actions were still against the will of God for them. And then, not only did they take Moabite wives, but they stayed there. They lived there for about 10 years. And God put more pressure on their lives. For he took the sons as well. Both Mahlon and Kilion died. Now, we need to think about this. Does God discipline his children? Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 12. Does God discipline his children? And how are we to respond to that discipline? I want to read to you a lengthy section here in Hebrews 12. I want to read verses 3 through 17. I'd love for you to follow along carefully in your Bibles. This is indeed a precious section of God's Word. Hebrews 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping heads and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's think about discipline, the Lord's discipline for a moment. Our God, our Father, is absolutely sovereign over all things, is He not? The Scripture clearly tells us this. Of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. And so our Father has an amazing way of harnessing, Romans 8.28, all things to work together for our good. And therefore, He can use all things to bring about discipline in our lives. When we experience hardship in our lives, when we experience some sort of loss, when we experience some sort of event, some sort of testing, some sort of pain, some sort of difficulty, it could be anything, anything included in the all things that God works together to make us like Jesus. We must not respond to those things and think, well, it's just part of the unfolding of time. And I'll just get stronger as I bear up underneath it. As if it's an impersonal action toward us. You see, because that never happens like that for a believer. Everything that happens in your life and my life that, that draws us into a time of difficulty is from the hand of God. you believe that? Everything. Even the sin that happens to us. It's from the hand of God. It's from the hand of God. You have to rest in that, otherwise you'll never get to the next idea of this. Think about it. You say, well, God wouldn't ordain sinful things to happen to me. Think about the cross. The cross is the quintessential example of how God causes sinful things to work out for the good of His Son and for the good of His people. Was the cross good or was it bad? Was the cross righteous or sinful? The event of the cross. We know clearly from Acts 2 and verse 23 that God was harnessing, sovereignly using in a sinless way the sinful Work from man, men with wicked hands to crucify the Son of God. And yet it was God's eternal purpose to do so at the same time. We need to take that same theology and bring it into our lives. That God, just like Joseph and every other child of God we read about through all Scripture, God orchestrates in His sovereign providence all things into our lives. And when we feel that loss, that stress, that strain, that test, that trial, that temptation, that difficulty, that pain. It's from God's hand. And it's always discipline. Now, I want you to think about the word discipline. If I could put a, a broad category on all that God does like that, it's, it can all come under the category of discipline. So you could, you could even make a little chart on your page if you wanted to. All things God uses to discipline us as his children. Now, discipline, when you think of that word, you think of, maybe you think of um, remedial discipline, something, something corporeal, something, something painful. That's not inherently what discipline means. Discipline means training. Discipline means structure. Discipline means teaching. So there's two kinds of discipline that God brings to us. There's the, there's the discipline that we'll call training. The training. And our training, the discipline of training, here you can put that down on one side underneath the discipline. The discipline of training, God directs at us for our, because of our immaturities. Our immaturities. How many of us have immaturities? Everyone. Right? The only one, the only man... The only human being who does not have any immaturities is Christ and those who are already in eternity. 
but we all have immaturities. And so is it a good thing that God disciplines us, trains us through our immaturities? Can we take all those sort of events as God training us? Yes, we must indeed. We must. We must not be thoughtless about it. We must take it as at least training. And so every event that we we have upon us that brings about some sense of loss or pain or difficulty, we need to come to our Lord in prayer, our Father in prayer, and say, Father, why are you working this in my life today? What is your intention? Open my heart. Show me what you're doing. At very least, he's training us out of our immaturities. But then he may also be, and here's the other word, chastening us. Chastening us for what? Or rebellions, right? He, he does chasten his children for rebellion. There Can seasons of rebellion enter the life of a genuine believer? Oh, absolutely. You see that all through Scripture as well. But in all of these things, God is disciplining us. He's either training us out of our immaturities or chastening us from our rebellion. And you see God doing this in the life of Naomi and Elimelech. So there's discipline, there's training, there's chastening. Now, what is our response to that? And here's what I want you to see today. And we're going to come back to this text, Lord willing, in a few weeks. I have something else planned that I want to share with you. But for now, I want you to just look at verse 5. Verse 5 gives us two responses that we should have toward God's training in our lives like this, his discipline or his chastening. Look what he says. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Here's the first one. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Interesting thought, isn't it? Don't regard it lightly. Don't think little of it. Think about it. As a child, as a responsive child, would his father's discipline. Parents, think about it in terms of you and your children. You sit your son or daughter down, you take their shoulders in your hands, you look at them in the eyes and you say what? Now, now sweetheart, listen to me. Son, listen to me. I have something I want to tell you. This is very important for you. And sometimes our children don't really think much about what we tell them, do they? They don't value it. They don't feel its weight. They don't receive its, its importance. They don't process it. They don't go away from that conversation and take it to prayer and, and thought and write out how they might apply it. You know what? Sometimes we're like that with our Heavenly Father. We give very little thought to what God is doing in our lives and why He is doing it. Do you see what I mean? That's, we all can struggle with that. We need to be very careful not to regard lightly these fatherly events in our lives because God is doing it purposefully, strategically to, to train us out of our immaturities and to, and to chasten us from our rebellion. But also, look at the other one. Not only are we to not regard the, the discipline of the Lord lightly, but look at the other response. Nor what? Be weary when reproved by Him. That's the other extreme, isn't it? We uh, become mindful of God's disciplining hand in our lives, and that discipline seems to sometimes grow very, very long and heavy. And we become very weary with it. And sometimes we ask God, God, how much? How much am I going to have to deal with in all of this? And we, we sort of despair. And God lifts our chin and He says, look at me. Don't grow weary with this. Why? Why shouldn't, why shouldn't we grow weary with the discipline of the Lord? Why should we be so thoughtful of these things? And the answer is verse 6, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Oh, that is the strongest encouragement in any season of, of discipline. 
God is saying to you, I love you with a steadfast love. And he chastises every son whom he receives. That's the thing. That's what God's doing. How can you get weary of something like that? Of course we do, but that's when we need to remind ourselves, this is God loving me like a father. This is God teaching me about himself. This is God treating me like a son or like a daughter. Oh, so much in this text. But something to be very thoughtful of. Don't think lightly. I think it appears to me that Elimelech and Naomi, before the ten years was up, were thinking lightly about God's discipline. And they, and they didn't respond to it rightly. May the Lord, may we turn to Christ and see Christ in His trials and with Him and by His strength cry out to our Father with, with strong cries and tears like it says in, in Hebrews 5 so that God would deliver Him through it all and then He becomes the source of salvation for us. Hebrews 5, such a precious text, knowing that Christ is our Savior, even under the discipline of God. So, responding faithfully to the Lord's discipline. I think we'll stop there today, um, and then we'll, we'll sing together and share at the Lord's table, um, and I will pick up there, Lord willing, next week, responding faithfully to the opportunities God gives us to share the gospel the theme of fullness, emptiness, and then fullness again, and then five, finding God's will through Scripture, prayer, and providence. How many of you, how many of us, we struggle sometimes to know how to discern God's secret will for us? Well, that's something I think we can begin to learn a little bit about in the book of Ruth. And there are many more lessons to come as well. As we close this morning, I want us to think of something as we direct our hearts toward the gospel. Remember, in the first part of this story, God pressed heavily upon the the life of Ruth in order to bring her to salvation. I want to ask you here this morning, is someone here among us? Are you here or listening even online in a position where God is putting great pressure on your life? and you know that you are not yet a child of God, you've not yet come to repentance and faith in Christ? Think about that. Is God working in your life to bring you to Himself for the first time? I think it's important that you look even at Ruth's example and see how she came to Christ, to God, in faith, willing to repent of her false gods, her sin, to put it all behind her, and to receive the one true God as her Savior and Lord. I would exhort that for you as well today, if that's where you are. Don't resist God's call. Don't resist God's movement in your life to bring you to repentance, to conversion. Run to Christ. Find your refuge under the shadow of His wings. It's the amazing thing about God is that in our sin, like, like Jeremy was sharing with us this morning, in our sin, we are rightly objects of His wrath. And yet, if we turn, if we just begin to be willing by His grace to turn from that sin and place our faith in His saving provision, the person and work of Jesus Christ, He will be our refuge from His own wrath. And He will welcome us as His children and forgive us and free us from the punishment of sin and the, and the power of sin over us. He'll give you a new heart that loves His ways and, and longs to trust in Him from day to day. If that's you this morning, I just urge you, do not resist the pressure of God's hand. Humbly come to Him in repentance and faith in the person of Jesus Christ who lived to provide you a perfect righteousness who died right, to absorb your guilt and your punishment in your place, who rose to give you new spiritual life, who prays for His children to keep them 
his own, away from the evil one, and sanctify them, and who is coming again to complete the work he began. The Bible says, now is the right time. Today is the day of salvation. You don't know what a day may bring forth, the Scripture says. You don't know that you'll have tomorrow. You don't know that you'll have this afternoon. When you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Respond to it humbly, submissively, and receive the offer that he gives you to make you his son or daughter and grant you eternal life. Let's stand together and let's pray. I'll ask the men to come forward as well as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Our Father, there there are many wonderful lessons to learn through the precious books that you have given to us in your word. We pray that you would open our hearts to them. But Father, may we receive them not as a cause for self-righteousness and self-dependence, but another reason again to point us to the rock of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ to find our sufficiency and all of our salvation from beginning to end in Him. Father, as Your people, we come to You today telling You that we love You, that we're learning to trust You more and more, that we do want to turn from our own sin and our own immaturities. We want to trust in Christ increasingly, so that we may increasingly look like Him, think like Him, sound like Him, walk like Him, for Your glory, for our joy. Father, do this great work in us, we pray. And comfort our hearts and encourage our hearts, stir our hearts as we gather around the Lord's table now. And remember the body and the blood and the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. May it cause us to grow in our unity with one another. May it cause us to increase in our joy in our fellowship with you and with the Son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.